You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. I invite you to turn this afternoon in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 1. This is in connection with our sermon this afternoon, which will be about confessing the name of Jesus in line with Lord's Day 11 of the Heidelberg Catechism. So we'll read about that name of Jesus in Matthew chapter 1. We'll read the verses 18 through 21. This is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man and did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins." And then if you would turn with me also to Acts chapter 17, where we find the Apostle Paul in the city of Athens. We'll begin at verse 16 and read through verse 34. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to dispute with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we want to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious, for as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I found even an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. Now what you worship as something unknown, I am going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by hands. He's not served by human hands as if he needed anything because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. From one man he made every nation of men. They should inhabit the whole earth and he determined the time set for them in the exact places where they should live. God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by man's design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance But now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to all men 
by raising him from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, we want to hear, we want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. A few men became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, and also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. Our text this afternoon is the Word of God as it's summarized and confessed by the Church in Lord's Day 11 of the Heidelberg Catechism. Why is the Son of God called Jesus, that is, Savior? Because He saves us from all our sins, and because salvation is not to be sought or found in anyone else. Do those who seek their salvation or well-being in saints, in themselves, or anywhere else, also believe in the only Savior, Jesus? No. Though they boast of Him in words, they in fact deny the only Savior, Jesus. For one of two things must be true. Either Jesus is not a complete Savior, or those who by true faith accept this Savior must find in Him all that is necessary for their salvation. Dear brothers and sisters who confess the powerful name of Jesus, in a certain sense, we can't speak about confessing the name of Jesus without taking into account the context in which we do that, the the society, the culture in which we do that. And that becomes clear even as we look at our Lord's Day this afternoon, Lord's Day 11, and we realize that especially in question and answer 30, It's definitely speaking into the context of the church at the time in which this was written, a context which was largely dominated by the Roman Catholic Church and by their understanding of sin and salvation and how they relate to the work of Jesus. That's why it mentions saints or in themselves. We'll get to that later. But that's definitely a Roman Catholic context. We obviously live in a somewhat different context today in Canada, and a large aspect of our context, of our culture, is something that's called pluralism. Pluralism. You could simplify it by calling it many-ism, or the idea or the philosophy of many. Canada is, in a certain way, one of the most pluralistic countries in the whole world, Because we are home to many different people from many different contexts and cultures and countries that all come together and mix together to create this society that is one society, but which is made up of many different people, hence the name plural. Canada celebrates that manyness. We speak about the cultural mosaic and things like that. Well, in the church, we also celebrate manyness. Because that is really what the church of Jesus Christ is. The gospel went out to all nations and calls men and women from all nations to repent and believe in Jesus Christ. It, the gospel really transcends cultures and languages and countries and calls men and women from diverse places to come together to worship the Lord Jesus Christ. The book of Revelation gives a picture of the diversity and a truly Christian worldview, sees and celebrates the differences that we have in this world, the differences of culture, the differences of language, the differences of 
ways of doing things, but realizes that we can come together and be united in Jesus Christ. It's really a beautiful thing. That's one side of pluralism. There is, however, another side of pluralism, you could say a darker side, and that is what you could call philosophical pluralism, or the the idea, the philosophy, or even the theology of pluralism. And that's an idea that refuses to allow any one religion or worldview to hold an exclusive claim on the truth. So it says that in order to be able to mix together and have a society where there are lots of different people with lots of different ideas, we need to accept them all equally. One can't be better than the other. One can't be more true than the other. That's philosophical pluralism. It's the kind of thing that's baked in in the universities of our Western culture, and it's served through various means all over the place. Today, we eat this pie that's baked in the universities of our society, whether we like it or not. We are exposed to pluralism, to this kind of pluralism which rejects any sort of claim, exclusive claim on truth today. Pluralism is the sort of philosophy that leads people in our time to call Christians intolerant bigots and narrow-minded Neanderthals. When you speak about Jesus Christ and you say that He's the only way to salvation in our society today, people will be offended. If you say that the Bible is God's Word and that it's the only trustworthy source of truth, people will think that you're arrogant. If you try to tell others about Jesus and His love, you're, you're not evangelizing, they would say. You're, you're proselytizing. You're trying to get people to go from other groups into your group because your group, you think, is better than their group. And that goes against pluralism. That makes you really an enemy of this idea of pluralism. While confessing Jesus, who saves us from our sins, in a pluralistic society, in our society today, is a difficult thing, and perhaps even a scary thing. Yet it is important, and it is in fact necessary that we do this. It's what we're doing here this afternoon in church. It's what we do every time we gather together. And it's what we should be doing in our lives as well. We confess Jesus in a pluralistic society. And this means, as we'll look at it, that we need to speak about the problem that ails us all, which is the problem of sin. And it also means that we're going to have to talk about the Savior who's above them all. Not the one who's equal with all the other ones, but the one who's above them all, the only one there is. And that's Jesus Christ. So first then, confessing Jesus in a pluralistic society means that we're going to have to talk about the problem that ails us all, whether we realize it or not. Now, if we want a biblical example of what it means to confess Jesus in a pluralistic society, then we can go with the Apostle Paul to the city of Athens. And we've already done that in reading Acts 17. Because there we meet with the Apostle Paul through the pen of Luke by the inspiration of the Spirit 
We meet the Athenians and we meet a very pluralistic way of thinking. You see, Athens had been for a very long time, since the, the, the time of Socrates, uh, 400 or so years ago, well, even more than that, before Paul comes to Athens, there had also been Plato and Aristotle had come from there. Many philosophers came to and gathered at Athens. It was the philosophical center of the, the world in that time. And it still was in the time of Paul. And because this country, uh, that, that city embraced all these different ideas and all these different philosophers, it meant that it also, it also meant embracing many different gods and many different ideas about God and how to relate to God and who God was and what God or gods did. Acts 17 mentions the Stoics and the Epicureans. Those were two schools that had a certain way of viewing God or gods. And there were many other groups as well. The Athenians, in fact, were so pluralistic in their approach. They were so committed to having many different gods and, and counting them all equally that they even had an altar to an unknown god, just in case they might have missed him. So this is what Paul walked into when he came to Athens. But two things that we should know when immediately upon coming to Athens, one is that he accepts this reality. It's a pluralistic city. It's a pluralistic atmosphere, and he works with that. But two, we should realize that this was something that deeply troubled him. We read that Paul was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. The Apostle Paul bristled when he saw how prevalent the idols were in the city because he knew that wherever there's a proliferation of idols and, and a spirit of this philosophical pluralism, or even theological pluralism, this plural approach to God, many different ways, possibilities, he knew, of course, that there, there is false worship. There, the one true God is not being worshipped. Among all the many, there's a rejection of the one. So Paul is disturbed by this pluralism, and he ultimately rejects it. But we should notice also one other thing about his encounter with the Athenians, and that is that he begins by finding a common ground with those that he's arguing against. He begins by finding a common ground, in fact, in three ways. First, he, he says to them, I can see that you are very religious. And that's a good way of approaching them, because it's true. And he's not making a value judgment at all. He's just stating a fact. You're very religious. And they were a people who, who prided themselves on their religious diversity. They would have thought he was giving them a compliment. And then second, he, he hooks into the, the culture that they have there, that religious diversity, when he brings up the altar of the unknown God. And again, he gives no value judgment on it yet. But he raises up and he says, well, what you worship as unknown, that's what I'm going to speak to you about. So they're still on level ground. And then, as he goes on to speak about that unknown God, he says that he's the creator of heaven and earth. But in, even in doing that, the Apostle Paul brings up their own poets. And he appeals to elements of their own culture in order to gain credibility with them and to relate his message to them. So he relates his message in a context that they can easily understand and they might even appreciate. 
So the Apostle Paul is very tactful in his approach. We can learn from that. But then we also need to notice that at a certain point, all this catering to a pluralistic society has to stop. And Paul comes at the climax of his address to the heart of the matter. He says what it comes down to is this. You're worshipping idols. In the past, God overlooked this sin, but he's not going to do it anymore. And God will judge the world through Jesus Christ, whom he raised from the dead. Again, Paul is very tactful and even delicate in his approach as he begins to speak to the Athenians. But when he comes right down to it, he says, you are wrong. And you need to repent or face judgment. Behind what he's saying, of course, is that sin is a reality. And he's saying to them, you're manifesting your sinfulness in this idolatry and in this relativism and in your rejection of the one true God. In trying to worship every God, you're worshiping no gods and you're rejecting the one God. And you need to repent from your sins. You see, the truth that we cannot get away from, especially when speaking about and confessing the name of Jesus in our society today as well, is the reality of sin. After all, he is Jesus who saves his people from their sins. And so the one thing that we must do in confessing Jesus in our world is speak about sin, the problem of sin. Now we need to notice that speaking about sin and speaking about judgment is not going to be politically correct. It's, it's not really acceptable in our society. And it might result in you being called judgmental or bigoted or narrow-minded. But yet, at the same time, we shouldn't approach the subject as people who are bigoted or narrow-minded or judgmental. We shouldn't speak about sin in an insensitive way or without tact. Remember, the Apostle Paul approached the Athenians with, with great tact. He was very careful, you could say, when he was speaking to them. But at a certain point, we need to get down to reality. When we speak of sin, we are relating to people their greatest problem and their greatest need, which is deliverance from sin. When we raise the issue of sin and judgment, we're not following a method of our own imagination or our own making. We're following the pattern given by many as they confessed Jesus. You can think of many speeches throughout the book of Acts which, which are very clear in calling the people to repentance for their sins. Think of Peter as he uh, addressed the people on Pentecost. After talking to them and, and speaking about their sin, especially in, in killing the Lord Jesus Christ, the people, it says, were cut to the heart. Or we can also think about the, the whole narrative of Scripture, the whole story of Scripture, that God created everything good, but then there was rebellion and sin. And sin comes up time after time after time. There's, there's no escaping it. When we confess Jesus in our world, we can't get away from the reality of speaking about sin. Because the name Jesus itself means Yahweh saves. 
the Lord saves. And Jesus came to save people from their sins. As Christians, as those who follow the Lord Jesus Christ, we are his witnesses. And in doing so, we're witnesses to the truth. And a foundational and inescapable truth of this world is sin. But yet, when we speak about sin, we need to speak about it properly and effectively. We're not only confessing the name of Jesus in the world, we're confessing the name of Jesus to the world. And so we want to engage the world with this name and ultimately call them to worship Him. So when we're speaking about sin, we need to realize that we are talking about rebellion against God. That's really what it is. But we're not only speaking about a kind of moral failure. It's true that that's a big and important part of sin, that we fail to do the good that we ought to do, the good that God requires in His law, and so that we're guilty before Him when we stand in judgment in our sin before Him. That That is sin. But that's not the only aspect of sin. When we're speaking about sin, especially in our world, we need to understand the profound and and inescapable effects of sin as well. Anyone who anyone who you talk to in this world who doesn't completely have their head in the sand is going to have to realize that there's problems in this world. That there's something or there's a lot of things that are going terribly wrong. People sense that. People realize that we're not in a perfect world and or we haven't yet reached one. Some people have resigned to that fact. Others really resent that. They grate against it. But almost everyone cannot deny it. There's a problem. And so when you speak to people about sin, you can identify that problem as sin. Sin has resulted in many things going wrong in this world. And they'll get what you're talking about then. If you start from that premise, then... I think, and it's been my experience at least, that people will will also realize their own limitations. They realize that as there's problems with this whole world, there's also stuff that goes wrong with us. They see the brokenness in this world, and they see it in their own lives as well. They they feel it in their relationships. They they feel it in their upbringing. They, They feel it in many different aspects of life. And so really, it's... It's not that hard to get people in our world to, in in one way, accept the reality of sin. And then when you have established this reality, that's when you come to the hard part. Because at a certain point, they need to realize that they themselves participate, and in fact, carry on and do this sin. But again, if you've established that Sin has to do with the brokenness in this world, the brokenness of relationships, the things that go wrong in our lives. Then others will be more willing to accept that, yes, they too might have lived or treated others or acted in a way that probably wasn't right. We're all equipped with a conscience, thankfully. And all of us have willfully gone against our conscience and have heard it at some point. And have felt that feeling of guilt afterward. Well, the Bible teaches that not only our conscience holds us to account, but God the Creator 
holds us to account as well. When we speak about sin, we're not merely setting people up to talk about Jesus. We're not just setting them up for an evangelistic message. When we talk about sin, we're really testifying to the truth. Sin is reality. And that's what Paul was doing when he spoke to the Athenians. Those Athenians were living blindly in rebellion against God, against their Creator. And so Paul told them the truth about sin. And he told them about the judgment that they would face. And their reaction? Well, it wasn't the repentance that Paul might have hoped for. It wasn't the repentance that they ought to have responded with. Most of them scoffed. They laughed at them. Especially when they heard about the resurrection from the dead. They couldn't understand it. It was too much for them. And so they laughed Paul away. They scoffed, and in so doing, they really stopped the Apostle Paul from finishing what he was going to say. They scoffed him off the stage, and so he couldn't get to the best part of his message. The best part that we also must get to when we're confessing the name of Jesus. Which is not that we're sinful, and that God is going to judge us. You see, Paul hadn't yet gotten to the good news. And that brings us to the second point about the Savior above them all. The part that Paul hadn't told the Athenians yet when they laughed at him was that Jesus Christ was not only the judge who had rose from the dead, but He was also the Savior. That He had died for their sins. That He had died in order to make atonement for the sin in which they participated, of which they were guilty. Paul hadn't told them that Jesus' death was for their sins, and so they could repent and turn to Him. Because for a problem as deep and profound and as far-reaching as sin, we need the right kind of Savior. That was the Savior that that Paul was speaking about. When you have a really profound problem, you need the right kind of person to deal with it. You see, when I once backed out of my garage and I rubbed the mirror against the basketball net and knocked it off, I could go to Canadian Tire, get some really strong glue and stick it back on. And it was good as new. Nobody knew the difference. But when I was driving and my car spun out of control and I hit a pole, then I was into a bigger problem. And that was a problem I couldn't fix myself. There was nothing I could do I needed the right kind of person to fix it. You see, the more profound your problem, the more profound and unique the person you need to find to help you. There's only one Savior for the problem that ails us all. There's only one Savior for the deepest problem that this world faces. And that Savior is the one who's above them all. Jesus. Jesus is the only Savior. That's the message of Scripture, and that's the message that we also must bring to our culture, just as the church has always tried to bring this message to its culture. You see, in the days of the Heidelberg Catechism, the culture facing the church was dominated by Roman Catholics. And that's clear from question and answer 30, when it talks about saints, themselves, and anywhere else. The Roman Catholic Church 
people lost sight of Jesus as their Savior, and they began to call on saints in order to help them. They, if you needed money, if that was your deepest problem, then you would call on Saint Anne. If you were sick, then you would call on Saint Nicholas or a host of other saints who actually were uh, associated with different kinds of sicknesses. So if you had a problem, you found the right saint for that, and you called on them. And in fact, you were denying Jesus as your Savior, just as you were denying your deepest need, which was deliverance from your sin. So that's what the Catechism is referring to with saints. When it talks about in themselves, it's referring to the whole Roman Catholic doctrine of salvation, where they said that in baptism you were given the gift of grace, and then... The rest was sort of up to you to to use that gift of grace to do good works and so earn God's favor. And then you would go to heaven after going to purgatory for a while. But ultimately, the system of salvation was one that you had to accomplish yourself. God certainly helped, but you had a large role to play in it. So that's salvation in yourself. Well, the category for anywhere else is, of course, that's a catch-all category for any other system, idea, routine, person, group, or philosophy that you either formally or functionally, intentionally or not intentionally look for or go to for salvation. Well, what the Catechism speaks of as anywhere else is what we're going to speak about this afternoon. Because we need to ask ourselves and also our culture, what are our saviors? If not Jesus, what are we looking to for deliverance? Where do we go for relief, for support, for deliverance from the problems that ail us? If not to the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Well, where do we look? Do we look to our our religious life. It's very easy for us to look at the, the patterns and the rituals of our religious life and, and find a sort of salvation in that. That is, we can sort of be Christians and, and do the right things and ignore the person and work of Jesus, not give our lives in worship of Him, and think that we're doing okay as long as we don't do any really bad sins, like mow your grass on Sunday as long as you come to church, and as long as you pray before your meals. You sort of do those things, and you should be fine. Now, that might not be what we'll actually say, but sometimes, and for some people, that's how we live. We think those things are sufficient to save us. Or we might look to our experiences. Perhaps, at a certain time, we're very troubled in our lives. And so we, we come to church to get a certain kind of feeling, to, to get a certain kind of, of warmness or, or, or levity, lightness. And if the church doesn't give that to us, then we despair or we get angry. And if it does, then we feel contented. And then everything's good again and it doesn't really matter until another issue comes our way that knocks us back again. And so we have to come back again looking for a certain kind of experience. And on and on and on. Or anywhere else, really. We need to be aware that it's in our human nature. It's part of our sinful nature 
to look for salvation other than in Jesus, our Lord. Let him or her who thinks they are strong beware lest they fall. It's a temptation for all of us. We need to not only look at ourselves, we need to ask ourselves those questions, and we need to continually look to the Lord Jesus Christ for deliverance. But we also need to ask, what is our world trusting in for their salvation? Where does your neighbor look for their deliverance, if not to Jesus Christ? Perhaps they look to technology. There's quite a few people in our world who see technology and the advances of it as the way out of our problems. Our problems are things like, like poverty, uh, things like death, things like malnourishment. And so improving technology is going to fix these problems for us. If we can understand more about people's minds or habits, or if we can make space and time smaller by advances in technology, then maybe we'll be okay in the future. Or other people look to knowledge. There's many who feel that the greatest lack in this world is simply knowledge. People don't know enough to know how to live a good life. And so, they need to be educated. Education will, in time, some people believe, eradicate the problems that we face. Or perhaps your neighbor is not really looking anywhere for deliverance. That's actually quite likely. There's a strong spirit of of fatalism and apathy with regard to deliverance. People are just hoping that there is no meaning in life. That you don't even need deliverance. You just live and then it's all over. Life is just a bunch of random chance events and there's no sense of trying to find deliverance in it. You just have to deal with it. But in the end, they too are really looking for deliverance. They're looking for it in their own ideas or understanding about what life is like, about what's going to happen at the end of it. But you'll notice that the saviors that we choose are directly connected to the problems that we perceive. You choose a savior like technology if you think that your problems are limited to to poverty and things like that. But when we face this world with the cold stare of reality, when we look deeply into the problems that do face us, and when we look deeply into the truth of God's Word as He's revealed it, then we realize that underneath all those other problems, there's one problem that stands out, and that's sin. And that's the sin that began with our rebellion against God. That's the sin that has resulted in our corruption. And that's the sin that lives in our hearts. None of these other saviors are going to help because they don't deal with the problem. Sin is a deep and a profound, and yes, it's a personal problem. And Jesus Christ is the only Savior from our sins. He took them to the cross with Him. And He nailed them there. And He overcame evil in that ultimate act of love when He bore the burden of God's wrath against sin for us. Jesus is the perfect Savior. He's the Savior above them all. We don't need to speak about all the other pretenders out there to know 
that Jesus Christ is the one that we're looking for. And we need to confess this Jesus in our society, in our pluralistic society, and we need to do that by presenting Him as the only way, the only truth, the only light. And that's going to mean that some people are going to scoff at you. Some people are going to laugh at you. Some people are going to think that you're stupid because you believe that. But others, by the grace of God, are going to listen. And they're going to be convicted under the weight of their own conscience and of the law of God. And they're going to see the beauty of God's grace in Jesus Christ, His Son. So what about us? Are we ready to confess the name of Jesus? But what do we do when it's hard to speak about Him? When it's hard to witness to Him? When it's, when it's embarrassing to speak about the truth? What do I do when I'd rather be quiet about my Lord than to speak boldly about Him? Well, we need to remember that He's our Savior. Remember that He died to cleanse us from our deepest need, our sin. And that He redeems us because we're weak, frightened, and scared. And so we need to go to Him. Spend time with Him in prayer. Call on Him and and ask for strength. Learn from Him. Recall what He has done for you and And how much you do love Him and want to serve Him. And remember that when you speak of Him, you're not selling a product or an idea. You're speaking about the person who loves you the most in this world and who saved you. You're talking about the center of your life. You're telling about the one who saved you from your sins. Because we confess Jesus, the Savior, who saves us from our sins. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.